following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Now we move into the visionary part of the book in Daniel 7 through 12, six chapters of what we would call apocalyptic visions Daniel has at various times. And then we actually go back in time a bit at this point to the reign of Belshazzar. So let us hear God's word. I'm going to read the first half of chapter 7 to us. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory 
and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Last weekend, we were babysitting three of our grandchildren for a couple days, and they had brought with them the DVD of the movie Frozen. So at a propitious time when the grandparents were needing a break and wanting to just sit down, I think it was Saturday evening, we popped it in and watched Frozen, which was pretty good. But Patty had seen it with the Cub Scouts with our grandsons months ago and said, John, it really doesn't compare to the big screen. You know, we saw it on our relatively little screen. It's just not the same as seeing it with all its technicolor, probably surround sound. Maybe you could see it with those 3D glasses and whatever it's called when it surrounds you. Well, when we think of the visions Daniel described and we think about the literary genre of apocalyptic visions, think big screen. And think that as Daniel received these and as they were written down as the reader's in his day, read these, and the church of God has read them throughout the ages. Think of the impact they're intended to have upon us, to encourage us, challenge us, and to build us up in faith in our great God. I want us to look at three main headings in our time. One is the nature of apocalyptic literature itself. How are we to understand this? And then walk through the elements of Daniel's vision which he has and make some judgments about them and then make some applications to our lives. So that's our goal for the time we have here. If you studied Daniel, which this part of the book, which is very similar and the basis for many of the images in the book of Revelation, you know that there are a great variety of interpretations reflecting many different views of the end times and many different considerations, but we want to at least try to see the central themes as we look at this chapter this week and next. What can we say then, first of all, about the nature of apocalyptic literature? The word apocalyptic, or apocalypse, as you know, probably has to do with unveiling. The final book of the Bible is called The Revelation. That's the book Apocalypse. It has to do with the end of history. And it's a different literary type or genre than narrative or poetry. It is to be interpreted differently because of that. And when you read it, you begin immediately to see this isn't just the ordinary historical narrative that Daniel chapters 1 through 6 is like. It employs striking and sometimes bizarre imagery, which may bring the reader, a sense of doom and terror. But ultimately, to the Christian, it brings clear theology of hope in God and His final victory, God's ultimate victory over the kingdoms and forces of evil in this present world. And so, it gives a message of triumph to God's people who are often suffering or persecuted 
persecuted or marginalized by the world. And it reminds Christians that God is even now on his throne and that he will one day finally judge all evil and right every wrong. Apocalyptic literature, scripture tells us really the end of the story, we might say, so that Christians are encouraged to press on in their everyday lives and to persevere in faith and in hope and in love. What are some of the elements that we see when we read these visions? Well, we've just mentioned that they have these visions, for example, these four beasts that come out of the sea. And these visions speak accurately and truly, but frequently they're not intended to be interpreted precisely. In other words, every little detail is not necessarily to be pressed for specific meaning. And and there's a great variety and a great range of how biblical interpreters interpret it. But the more we press the details, the thinner the ice that we're on, so to speak. It's kind of like parables Jesus tells. Generally, they tell a main point. They get across a main point. And if you take the parable of the prodigal son and get meaning from, uh, well, the the pigs that he's feeding mean this, and what he's feeding them tell us this, and the ring tells us this theological truth. No, there's, there are, there's a main point to it. You're not supposed to press every detail. In some ways, apocalyptic literature is like poetry. It has metaphor, and it gets across a point in this metaphorical way. Pressing the details too much or speculating too much about every little part of it gives rise to all kinds of interpretations which greatly differ from one another and speculative claims about what these passages teach. And so we must beware, but also we must seek to glean the truth that God's Word has. But there's also this sense of this kind of literature that as we see the visions unfold, we see that there's an intentional ambiguity. There's this sense of mystery. God is revealing things. And even when we get to the second half of chapter 7 next week, and the angel interprets this to Daniel, it's interesting that the the angel doesn't tell us an interpretation as if it were pre-written history. He doesn't tell us, well, in... in, um, you know, 322 B.C., this is going to occur, and this king is going to rise. No, even the interpretation has vagueness to it, has mystery to it. And, for example, the numbers that you find in Daniel and in the book of Revelation are often symbolic, standing for completeness or for a period of time being cut short but we must be careful not to press them too far. We already saw that in the vision in Daniel 2 where Nebuchadnezzar was um, humbled for a period of seven times, and seven times could have meant seven years, could have meant seven months, could have meant seven weeks, or it it may have just meant a period of time, seven being the number for completeness. Someone has said that apocalyptic literature is more like a pop-up picture book than a history book. I think that's a good way to think about it. It gives us big picture 
ideas about what God is doing, and we have to beware when we press the details too much. Another element of apocalyptic visions that Daniel has here is that they evoke powerful feelings in the reader. I read Daniel's reaction to verse 15, and then at the end of the chapter, you see his reaction again. He said, it says, here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Daniel's affected. He is moved emotionally from this. Our son had a friend in Texas when we'd go out there on our summer trip, and we'd often hike with his friend, and, and we'd sometimes be on a couple hours of a hike, and this friend would be along, and he had this practice of talking a lot, and he would tell us movies we hadn't seen, which we hadn't seen a lot of them. Sometimes he'd tell a movie blow by blow. I think, how does he know all this? He must have seen it multiple times. But um, as he told us these movies, it never really had the effect of maybe what it would really have been like to see it firsthand. And I feel like that's how we often are when we read a vision like this. We read it, and we kind of, you know, read it pretty fast. And, you know, okay, I got the main point. You see, Daniel was deeply moved. It affected him. So what I want to say as we conclude this first point is, even though the overall message of Daniel 7 is one of triumph and hope, and that's true for all the visions of the book, at the same time, it may be that we should have a sense of revulsion and of horror, and our emotions should be moved because one of the truths that comes out is the nature of evil in this present world. So even though ultimately it's a message of triumph and hope through Christ, still Daniel was shaken, and that's the intended effect the vision that God brings, and it should affect us to some degree in that way as well. Well, let's walk through the various elements of the visions Daniel has. And we see this vision of the four great beasts who come out of the sea and the heavenly court. You could summarize it in that way. He has this vision during the first year of Belshazzar. So, in other words, we're going back in time to about 552 B.C., and so, chronologically, we're back between chapters 4 and 5 of the book. We've gone back in time to when Babylon had not been taken over by the, the Medo-Persian Empire. And we find that in verse 2, Daniel describes the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, the four winds bring to mind the four points of the compass. And so, I don't think you can ever have this. It's like you have a nor'easter come with another storm and everything. You have winds blowing from all directions at the same time. And they're blowing over the sea, the sea which typically in the Old Testament signified chaos and rebellion against God. So, you have Daniel sees the sea, which in and of itself symbolizes rebellion against God often, and you have the four winds blowing from all different directions, so you can just imagine what that would do to the waves. 
It's not like they'd be orderly coming into the land, but they'd be going in every which way, this chaotic sea, this vision. And as he looks at the sea, verse 3 tells us, he sees four great beasts come up, one after the next, different from one another. And so it was this terrifying image of great beasts coming out of the, the chaos of the sea stirred by the wind. We walk through these beasts as we do this. I will give you the interpretation that's a pretty typical one, but know that there are other variations of it. And one interpretation is that possibly the four beasts, even if they represent historical kingdoms, also represent kingdoms throughout the ages until Christ returns. So it's not as if once you get past the fourth beast, there aren't any more beasts to come in that sense. Let's look at the four beasts and the kingdoms that they represent. The first represents Babylon itself, which is about to fall to the second beast when Daniel sees this vision. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. In the book of Jeremiah, Babylon is referred to in the image of a lion and an eagle both. And most commentators take the next part that as he looked, its wings were plucked off, referring to Nebuchadnezzar's humbling by God that we saw earlier in the book where God takes his mind away in a sense and he goes out and he eats grass for this period of time. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. So that's referring to Nebuchadnezzar's restoration. So Babylon is the first beast. In verse 5, the second beast comes, which typically is held to be the Medo-Persian Empire. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. This beast is a bear. It was raised up on one side. Could mean that that means the image Daniel sees is it's standing up on its hind legs, rearing to strike. Or he could just be disproportionately uh, high on one side. Many commentators take that to say that Persia was the dominant of the two powers of the Medo-Persian Empire. Do you see how already you're on thin ice to press the image too much? It may mean that, but we're not sure about that. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. There are also commentators who talk about the fact that the three ribs are Lydia, Babylon, and Egypt, which were conquered by this empire. And there are other interpretations of that as well. Possibly the Medo-Persian Empire. Verse 6, After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. This is typically taken to be the empire of Alexander the Great with Greece. And the lightning blitzkrieg, uh, the leopard is a very fast animals, and the four wings would add great speed to it. Later, after Alexander the Great died at age 33, his kingdom, if you know your history, was divided into four parts. And so it's possible that it refers to the Greek empire. And then verse 7 brings into the fourth greatest beast. After this, I saw in the night 
visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. And it goes on to talk about how it destroyed. And this is taken to be Rome, so that Rome is the final beast in this sense. And then it talks about the ten horns. Horns, typically a horn signified strength. So if you have ten horns, it's especially strong. And then there's the description of this little horn that, dev- that devours three of the horns. We're going to talk about this more because the angel in the interpretation gives us more about this. And so we're going to focus more on this next week. But many people take the little horn to be the Antichrist. And it's very likely that is the case. That is a very likely interpretation of this. In the middle of that, as this beast is there, the most terrifying of the four beasts, suddenly there's a change in scene. And you come to the very throne of God. In verse 9, Daniel looks and suddenly thrones were placed. And apparently these are somewhat like Ezekiel's chariot thrones because they have flaming wheels. And the Ancient of Days, who is interpreted as God alone, takes his seat. His clothing was white as snow, speaking about purity. And the hair of his head was pure wool, usually white hair signifying extreme old age, would signify wisdom of the ancients. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire, fire signifying judgment many times in the Old Testament. And a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. So here, suddenly, in this vision is introduced, the throne of God, the ancient of days, the just judge of all the world, surrounded by thousands and thousands, clearly a scene of judgment. And we see in verse 11 that there is judgment that takes place immediately. It's almost anticlimactic. This terrifying fourth beast is killed, its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. There isn't even a battle. There's nothing to it. It happens immediately. And as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now, if these four beasts represent kingdoms throughout all time, then there is a sense that they represent the entire church age, the age until Christ returns. I like the interpretation that it takes us up to the time of the Roman Empire. And then when we move to verse 13, and the appearance of one like a son of man, which is Christ, what we are seeing, and as I read through this again, what we're seeing is the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ to the right hand of God. So that dominion is given to Christ in this sense that Jesus, after he died and rose again, was ascended to the right hand of God and given dominion in that sense. So he reigns now, even though that reign is not fully seen. Notice verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And this is a very typical theme, the Son of Man coming on the clouds. The Old Testament uses that phrase, Son of Man, many times. In Ezekiel, it's used, I think, 90 times to refer to Ezekiel. But it says here, there came one like 
a son of man. So the phrase son of man brings out the idea of humanity. But then we see from what else is said about him that clearly he's not only human, but he's divine. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. So we have the kingdom of Christ established, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So it clearly has to be the Son of God and the Son of Man. And he's given this everlasting dominion. All peoples will serve him. He will reign forever, essentially, it is saying. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus uses the word Son of Man 69 times to refer to himself. In the Gospel of John, he uses it 12 times. It's the title of Jesus Christ most often that he most often used of himself. And probably be, partly because it conveyed both this sense of humanity of Christ and divinity. And so we see the coronation of Christ exalted to the presence of the Ancient of Days. And Daniel, as he sees all this, is moved and he's, he, his spirit is moved within him and he's alarmed. Well, that's just a brief overview of what we've seen here. We'll talk more about the horns next week and so forth, but what we want to do is take time to, to think about this. Whether the beasts are four kingdoms specifically or they symbolize kingdoms throughout this period of time, certainly they stand for the present world order with its violence and its power opposed to the living God which continues, we know, until the coming of Christ. The Bible makes that clear. But what are the main themes that we can draw from our text? The first is this, the horror of human evil, especially state-sponsored evil. These are kingdoms represented by these beasts. And the people of God must never be naive about the reality and the strength and the durability of evil in this world. There is a sense in which Daniel's response, which is one of alarm and concern, is rooted in a concern for God's people, and it should be an example for us. We still live in a day and a nation in which Christians enjoy privileges that many throughout history never enjoyed, freedom of religion, relative tranquility, in our lives. We are not oppressed very much. Yes, there are ways that Christianity is under attack, and probably you've been following in the news the Supreme Court case that was heard the other week about Conestoga Wood and uh, Hobby Lobby, and whether as a corporation they should have the religious freedom to not uh, be required to, to do what the government has required them to do in terms of health care. So we see things like that. And so certainly, as Christians living in the United States, we know that our freedoms are under assault in some ways. But it could be much, much worse. I think we need to stop and think at times like this when we read this. Do we identify with and do we pray for our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world where the state is acting very much like the beasts in Daniel 7 describes? 
What about the persecution of faithful Christians in North Korea or China or Saudi Arabia or Sudan? We could go on and on. Do we pray for them? Do we identify with them? And we can even take the application of this beyond state-sponsored evil to human evil of all kinds. When we think of human trafficking in the world and slavery and the millions of street children throughout the world and oppression and exploitation of all kinds that we see in this world, Christians are called to be people who are clear-eyed with regard to the reality of evil in this world. We live in a broken, fallen, evil world. And Jesus' words in Matthew 10, 28 certainly speak to us. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And so we live before our God. We trust in Him. We see evil for what it is, but we know that our God rules. And that brings us to our second application of this, second theme. The people of God must learn that God calls us to endure and persevere in suffering. God calls his people to persevere and endure in suffering. Suffering usually surprises us, doesn't it? We just don't think that's how life should be. We tend to think if suffering comes our way, even suffering in a small sense, something is wrong. How can I fix whatever it is to get out from under this suffering that God seems to have brought into my life? Lord, am I doing something wrong? Or is there some sin I need to confess? And certainly, suffering is an occasion to examine our hearts, but we shouldn't jump to the conclusion that if we just find what it is that we need to confess, then we'll be done with this. The Bible makes it plain that God's people will suffer. God's people are not immune from the normal sufferings of this fallen, broken world. And Romans 8 makes this very clear when it says, The whole creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. That's the experience of every Christian in this fallen world world. But also, there are ways and there are times that Christians will suffer, particularly for being a Christian. We saw this in Daniel chapters 1 through 6. We've seen this lesson again and again. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den for praying. That probably won't happen to us, but there are consequences. There are often persecution or other mild forms of oppression that may come. We look at it in Daniel through the lens of time, looking back hundreds of years ago and looking through the lens of biblical history and we read about what he experienced and and we are encouraged. But remember, we did not live through it like they did. I was reading a book about the Revolutionary War and this author was saying that most Americans have very little sense of how much the colonists of that revolutionary period suffered during those eight years of that war. Most people don't have any sense of how hard that was. He says that 1% of the population 
was killed. That was only surpassed by the Civil War. But if you take our population now of 300 million and take 1% of that, you know, you get 3 million killed. Um, That may not be that many in our sense of things, but the point of the book was this was a long and severe experience. But we tend to look back on that time and, you know, we are nostalgic about it and sentimentalize it and think, that was great. Boy, look what they did. And rightly so. We should be pleased with that, thankful for that. But the point is, we should not be surprised by suffering and evil in our lives and in our experience. Thirdly, our last theme, the Christian's hope must always be fixed not on the terrible events of history, but on the throne of God. Not on the terrible events of history, but on the throne of God and the reign of Christ. Isn't it interesting, the same vision has these evil beasts, has the sea all stirred up by the wind, and yet suddenly we're taken, in a sense, even behind that, behind the scenes, or above that, to the throne of God in the exaltation of Christ and His dominion and power over all nations, and it's glorious. Whatever happens in your life, in my life, whatever happens in our community, in our nation, whatever happens internationally, the believer is enabled by God to live thankfully and even triumphantly, trusting in God and His ultimate victory. That's what the throne room teaches us in dramatic fashion. And notice the Scripture doesn't just tell us this. It gives us in a sense, this surround sound panoramic vision of the throne of God and Christ at his side. Think of what Daniel had been through in his life. He was an older man now. Daniel had been carried into captivity with the first wave of exile from Jerusalem. Probably he was in his early teens at that point. He could have been 13, 14 taken away, probably separated from loved ones, separated from all he loved and knew. And now, over the years, he has become familiar with the royal court in Babylon. He's been honored in certain ways, but he's had to courageously stand and trust in God. But now, when he finally receives this vision, it's in the first year of Belshazzar. So, he's been there decades now. And certainly, Daniel knew quite well the kind of man Belshazzar was, and the kind of ruler he would prove to be. We're only in the first year when he receives this. But we saw in chapter 5 that the finger wrote on the wall about judgment, and it came that very night. Belshazzar was a man who didn't think twice about using the very temple cups and plates that had been used in divine worship in this orgy that he was having. No doubt there was a sense in which at this point, In his life, Daniel feared, rightly so, for the stability of Babylon. And he didn't realize it was going to be overthrown. And probably feared for the people of God as well. They had been called to make this their home. They had built houses. They had planted crops. And now Babylon was going to fall soon. And also, at this very time, the time was drawing near, the end of the 70 years prophesied by Jeremiah, that God had promised to restore his people to Jerusalem. So I'm sure all of this was on Daniel's heart. 
And we can imagine his mixture of expectation and concern. What is God doing in the world? Things haven't changed much, have they? We still wonder, what is God doing? What is God doing internationally? What is God doing with the United States? Seems that evil is triumphing or rising stronger. And here, God gives Daniel this vision of God's ultimate rule over the kingdom of this world and the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of God. Could Daniel understand all the outworkings of this in history? Did he understand that this was going to be Greece and then it was going to be Rome? Of course not. He didn't understand at all. The angel told him some of it, of what it was meant. But he saw the throne of God. And like Daniel, we need to remain fixed on that great reality. One of the great privileges we have in the West here is getting to read and hear stories of those enduring or escaping from state-sponsored beastly oppression. That is all around the world, different parts of the world. I read a review of a book called Escape from Camp 14 in which a 22-year-old Korean, North Korean young man escapes from one of the camps where his parents and his grandparents had been imprisoned and had died. And what an awful, brutal experience it was, but he finally escaped. Not many of us or any of us have lived through those kinds of stories. Our suffering tends to be more ordinary But whatever the suffering, Daniel's vision of the throne of God is to be the ballast in our ships, we might say, something that keeps us from being too easily tossed to and fro by the waves of the sufferings of this world. And I would just ask as I close tonight, have you seen the reality of this truth of God, that God is on his throne And he's appointed Jesus Christ to reign, he who died and rose again. Have you bowed your life to this king of kings who rules over the kingdoms of this world and one day will judge the world? There is still time, but don't delay seeking him. And may he be your king as you bow before him and trust in his name. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this heavenly vision. May it stir us. May it encourage us. May it help us even this week if we, are, if we have suffering of some kind, if there is a great trial in our lives, if we are praying for someone who is experiencing these things. Father, we thank you that you have assured us that you are working your purposes out And no kingdom, no earthly kingdom, no earthly evil or force can stand against you. We thank you that we belong to you, such a great King of kings and Lord of lords. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.